0: Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8, we're going to read the whole chapter to you. And hopefully, Lord willing, we'll cover the whole chapter tonight. But there's a lot to cover. So Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. It says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there, And then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy." And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, "'Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north.' So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, "'Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations.'" And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things, and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these." And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here that they should fill the land with violence, and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose, therefore I will act in wrath." My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. All right, back to chapter 8, verse 1. We're gonna you see that the chapter starts off with a date. And it says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, and on the fifth day of the month. Now to help you understand when this is, I gotta take you back to chapter one. Way back in chapter one. We saw the foundation laid for the dates that will be used from now on. Whenever we see Ezekiel listing the date of when a vision happened or something happened, it ties back to the beginning. In Ezekiel chapter one, it says in the 30th year, in the fourth month and on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God on the fifth day of the month. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. Now, if you remember, We did our study at the very beginning and we did our introduction and we saw how the siege of Jerusalem had three parts. The first one was in 605 BC. The next wave of attacks was in 597 BC. That's when Ezekiel was taken captive with his wife as well and the 10,000 captives. And Jehoiachin, King Jehoiachin, who only had a kingship for only three months at that time, was also taken captive. So in 597, Jehoiachin was taken captive. But we see here that this was Um, The fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. So this is actually happening, chapter 1, in 593 B.C., all right? Five years after Jehoiachin was taken captive in 597, in 593 B.C., that's when the first vision happened. Now in chapter 8, you'll see that it's now the sixth year in the sixth month on the fifth day of the month, he has this next vision, So a year and two months later, Ezekiel has his next vision. And actually, when we come back after the first of the year, you'll see that chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, and chapter 11 pretty much all deal with visions that he has from God about what's going on in Jerusalem and what's going to be happening. So he has this vision six years after 597, which is around 592 BC. All right, now... What also, this happened right around August, September of that year. All right, 592 BC, around August and September. That's important. You'll find that later on to be very, very helpful. All right. Now, God took Ezekiel in a vision to Jerusalem. His body stayed in Babylon, but he was transported in his spirit to Jerusalem to see what was happening in the temple at that time. I'm going to show you scripturally in just a second that what he was shown was happening at that moment. It wasn't he was shown things that had happened in the past. He was being shown what happened at that moment. I'll show you that in a second. But I also want to help you out for just a little bit here with understanding how he could be taken in vision. His body never left Babylon in his house that he's there in Babylon. His body never left the house, but he was taken by God in visions to Jerusalem. How many of you ever watched The Christmas Carol? All the different versions that they have. I was telling some people, if you haven't seen The Muppet Christmas Carol, you got to. It. It's the best one of them, all of them. I mean, if you haven't seen The Muppets version, it tops them all. And, I, and you won't believe me until you see it. And actually, we're going to be watching it as a family tomorrow night, because it's a tradition in our house to the night before Christmas for us. But we're doing Christmas early because of travel this year. The night before we open presents, we always... Watch the Christmas Carol. And so that's what we're going to be doing tomorrow night. Uh, and so, uh, but with that, if you remember in the Christmas Carol stories, Scrooge never really left his bed, yet the experiences were real. The angels would somehow transport him, grab him by a hand or whatever, and he'd go flying to these places and he would see them. And that's why Paul, in the same way, even though he sensed that it was in the Spirit, Yet it was so real and lifelike because his body was there and he could, you know, sense things with his body. That's why in 2 Corinthians 12, when he was taken in visions to third heaven, paradise, he said, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He kept saying it. And so Ezekiel is taken by God, kind of like those angels or whatever, ghosts or whatever they do in the Christmas story that we have. the Christmas carol story we've seen taken by the angel to Jerusalem. But he's being shown what is happening at that moment. Because the scripture shows it. Look at verses 5 and following. Then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes to the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? You see that? Are doing. The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. Go down to verse 9. He said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. Look at verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing? All right, and so I, you can see very clearly that this is happening at that moment. Does anybody realize, and hopefully you remember from previous studies, why this is so amazing, that they're actually doing this wicked stuff in the temple again? What had just happened 36 years prior to this? Do you remember? Josiah. Remember, Josiah had become the king and he had destroyed all the altars, all the high places, got the wickedness out of the temple, cleaned it all out. And 36 years later, it's all back. Just amazing. One generation, it's all back. And if you look at verse, as I pointed out earlier in a previous study, if you look at the verse 11, and before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jezaniah the son of Shaphan, standing among them. If you remember, Shaphan was the one who found, well, The priest handed the the book of the law that had been found in the temple when they were cleaning it up, handed it to Shaphan. He read it, was blown away by what he read. He went and read it to King Josiah, and Josiah began the reform. Shaphan's son, Jezaniah, is leading these leaders of Israel to do the wickedness that his father had just seen needed to be stopped. Now, when Ezekiel was taken into the entrance of the inner court on the south side of the temple complex... God shows him an idol there that God describes as an image of jealousy. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. He says, "'He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where it was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley.'" There was an idol there that was there in the the temple complex, and God described it as an image of jealousy or an image that provokes to jealousy. And ironically, the scripture says the glory of God was even there. Were they worshiping the glory of God? They were worshiping the idol and all these other things we're going to get to tonight. What I want to do is just take a little bit of time tonight and take you on a little study. I think it would behoove us tonight to realize how much God wants to be with us. We always look about going to be with God. We always think about going to spend time with God. And that's good, because we should want to be with Him. But how many of us really understand how much God wants to be with us? I mean, here He had built this place where He could dwell with them in their midst. And instead of worshiping Him and enjoying His presence, They started worshiping all these other things, and God became jealous. Why was God jealous? Because He wanted to be the only one who got the attention. So what I want to do is take you on a little journey. Go to John 17. I want to just show you just a few of the places in the Scriptures that give us a taste of how much God wants to be with us, and He wants us alone to Himself. In John 17, look at verses 24 through 26. Excuse me. Jesus is praying in the garden right before the cross. He says in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, talking about us, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them." Jesus is praying right before the cross and he says, "'Father, I want them to be in heaven with me. I want them to see my glory, the glory that I've had before the foundations of the world. And not only that, I want to make known who you are to them so that the love that you have for me will be in them and I will be in them.'" Jesus says, "'I can't wait until the day and we're together with no other hindrances.'" And some of us, hopefully all of us who know the Lord, have that same hunger, don't we? Don't we look forward to the day when this flesh that pulls us away from God and this world that pulls us away from God and Satan, who's still around, who pulls us away from God, will be dealt with and will have no more hindrances between us and just being with Christ? That's the heart of God the Father as well. Go back to John chapter 14. You're in chapter 17. Just back up to verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 15 through 21, and listen to how God talks about, Jesus, who is God, talks about how much he wants to be with us. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And by the way, this passage is simply talking about believing that he is who he is. That's the commandment. That's what it is. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Man, I love that part right there. Jesus says, I'm not going to give birth to you and then just leave. I'm not going to have you be one of my children who's now on the side of the road or a latchkey kid. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Whoever he he." Sorry, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, Jesus is pointing out the fact that this relationship that we've been given with God has been designed so that he can be with us and we can be with him in an intimate relationship. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verses 1 through 4. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Who's speaking? God the Father. That's right. And Jesus, he is God. God is speaking. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with men. You see that? He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you remember how God created the world, and then he put a garden in Eden, and he put man there? And then who came to visit a lot? God, who was there. (laughs) He made a place that he could be with them because of sin. Hopefully you understand the holiness of God. We were separated, but he provided a way that they could have him in their presence. They couldn't experience his full presence anymore because of sin. Even Moses couldn't see his full glory. He only could see his backside. But he wanted to dwell with them. He always wanted to be with him, and they worshipped everything else. As you're gonna see in just a little bit. But I don't want you to lose for a second this mindset or this understanding that God wants to be with us. As I travel around and help churches get back to the Bible and what it means to be walking with God, I deal with a lot of older churches that are kind of stuck. And one of their favorite hymns, as you know, some churches still sing hymn books, but out of hymn books, but one of their favorite hymns is, in the garden. You know that one? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. It's one of my favorites. Actually, it might be my absolute favorite, but the sad thing is, in most of the churches I deal with, they may love singing that song. They have no idea what it means to walk with God and hear him speak. I want to challenge you. And your relationship with God, don't just say, glad I'm saved, glad I'm going to heaven one day, and one day I get to go be with God. You've got him indwelling you now. He wants to be with you, and you're going to see in a second as I continue this little study about how much God wants to be with us, he not only wants to be with us, he wants to be the center and the foremost of every aspect of our lives. You're going to see a little bit later tonight that there's been this wrong mindset of certain things are sacred and other things are secular. And I'm going to show you that the Bible teaches that everything is to be sacred. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do is to be done to the glory of God. And we've got this mindset that there are certain places that are sacred and certain things we do that are sacred. No, God wants you to understand that everything is to be sacred as you do it with Him and Him being the center. Go with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. This was written to Christians. Look at verses 4 and 5. It was written to the church. James chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously, there's that word again, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Whenever we put confidence in anything else but him, I'm going to go into that in a lot more detail in a little bit. Whenever we put confidence in anything else but him, he's jealous. He's jealous. Go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. In the Old Testament, God showed us. All along, God has been showing what his desire was. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Israel's been in sin, and their response is, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And now God speaks and says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He doesn't want you to do all this outward stuff to make God happy, ritualistic worship to please God. He doesn't want you putting confidence in anything you do. Does he want me to offer a calf that's a year old? Does he want me to offer thousands of rivers of oil? Does he want me to give my firstborn child as a sacrifice to him, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And God says, I've told you all along. All I want you to do is to act justly Know what my word says, know what I've said, and do it. To love mercy and to just walk with me. I'll lead you as you go. Go to Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, the Lord paid attention. I'm going to say yes to obedience, but I want to make sure we clarify it. What's that? Walk in Him. See, we have a hard time because if you did a study on the word serve, you're going to find that the Bible says that we're to serve the Lord with gladness, right? Yet Paul in Acts 17 was preaching about God, and he said he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Well, how do you serve a God who says he's not to be served? In Matthew chapter 6, you see that Jesus says that you can't serve both God and money. Either you'll, we can't have two masters. You either one love one or hate the other. You can't serve both God and money. How do you serve money? That was a question. How do you serve money? By treasuring it. By putting your faith in money to take care of you. Your confidence is in the fact that you've got enough money in the wallet or the bank to take care of you. When you trust money to take care of you, you worship. you serve. You're actually going to find if you did a further study of the word serve in the Bible that some translations will say serve others will say worship. And that same translation that says serve here will also say worship over here. They interchange. It's not just one translation always says worship when one always says serve. Sometimes they go back and forth. And if you actually look at Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 and I ask you to quote it listen to how you all would quote it. If you were King James you would say I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice." which is your reasonable service. But if you were to quote NIV or other translations, you would say, which is your spiritual worship. Listen closely. According to the scriptures, Old Testament and new, worship and service are the same thing. How do we serve God? He's not served by human hands if he needed anything. In other words, he doesn't need you to do anything for him. You don't have to offer a, la- a calf of a year old or 10,000 rivers of oil or your firstborn for your sin. You don't have to do anything to serve God. He's not served in that way. But how we serve him is we totally trust him. Oh, by the way, you got to know what he wants you to do in order to act in obedience to what he said. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of people that think they're obeying God. They're doing all the things they think are right. They're not. They're, doing what, they're putting confidence in their definition of work, their service. But it's the wrong definition of service. So I want you to hear this tonight because we're going somewhere. I'm going to share with you some things tonight that may shock you a little bit. Hopefully not a lot of you, but some of you may be, and that's Okay. But I'm going to show you that the idolatry that was there in Jerusalem has crept into the church today as well. Go back to Ezekiel. Look at verses 5 and 6. Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Because the people of Israel had chosen to worship someone else, false gods, in the place that God had built so he could dwell with them, God chose to leave the temple. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. If you jump over to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10, look at verses 18 and 19. I'm skipping ahead here because we got a lot to cover. Just prior to this in chapter 9, the Spirit of God moves from the Ark of the Covenant ab- above the cherubim that are in the Ark of the Covenant, moves from th- there to the threshold of the temple. And in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, look at verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Now these are not the cherubim at the Ark of the Covenant that Moses had made. These are the cherubim, the real ones, all right? the ones that transport the glory of God. And so the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The Spirit of God, the glory of God, because of the sin of Israel, left the Holy of Holies, got on the cherubim that moved him, and they left. Kind of a sad thing, isn't it? Now let me just take a second to deal with something I hear a lot, and I'm just going to try to cover this as quickly as possible. I'm going to ask you a question first, though. Will the Spirit of God ever leave a New Testament church? Will the Spirit of God ever leave a New Testament church? The answer is no. Because the church is the people, not the building. I've heard so many people say, the Spirit of God left that place. There may be a lot of wickedness, and there may be even a bunch of disobedience in that group of people that call themselves believers. But listen closely. If there's one believer in the place, the Spirit of God has not left. Because He's never going to leave us, nor forsake us. He's not going to leave us as orphans. He's going to come with us. He's going to be with us forever. The Spirit of God will not leave a church if there are believers there. If it leaves a church... That means there are no believers there, and it's not a church. (laughs) Did you hear my question? Will the Spirit of God ever leave a New Testament church? As I travel around, and some of the things that kind of grieves me is the prophet in me has to bite my tongue as I'm a traveling preacher sometimes. But I'll go to churches to speak somewhere, and the worship leader will get up and say, well, it says in the Bible that if two or more are gathered together, that God's with us, Jesus is with us. And so there's two or more here, so we know Jesus is with us. And everything in me wants to stand up and say, so if I was here by myself, the Lord wouldn't be here? It's a total misunderstanding of Matthew chapter 18. That passage isn't talking about where two or more are gathered, Jesus is there. It's dealing with church discipline and his authority and his permission. And what you deal with there is the church in that context. He'll be a part of it. He'll prove. And so folks, I want to encourage you. Thank God we're not living in the day in which the spirit would leave. You know how the spirit of God came upon Saul when he became the king. God empowered him. So much so that he started to prophesy. And people said, Is Saul one of the prophets? That's why David cried out in Psalm 51 Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He knew that the Spirit of God had come upon him. And because of sin, the Spirit of God may leave. But we live in the age of grace, in this wonderful time period where he's taken a group of people that weren't even looking for him and saved us and given us his Spirit. He's come to dwell us forever. And so, thank God, the Spirit will never leave if there's a believer in that place. Now, look at verses 7 through 13. As Ezekiel's taken further in the temple complex, God shows him worse abominations. In chapter 8, starting in verse 7, and he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they're committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the of, house of Israel are doing? In the dark, each in his room of pictures. For they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. This was now being done in secret, but God knew, and there was a little hole in the wall, and he told Ezekiel, go ahead and dig in that wall. Look in there, and he looked, dug, and the hole got bigger, and he went in, and inside the temple complex, they had these places where all these paintings of the animals were on the walls, and they were worshiping the animals. Go to Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Does God not know his kids? I'm going to ask you. is, Is animal worship going on today? And listen closely to when I ask this question. What I mean by animal worship is actually worshiping animals to the point that you get your direction and your provision and your blessings from the animals. Do people actually worship animals today? In India, they think cows are holy and sacred, elephants in some places. Has anybody ever eaten a Chinese restaurant? Did you ever see the placemat that has all the animals and the year of the goat and the year of the rat and the year of the snake and whatever? And on there, it'll tell you how to live your life according to which animal and which year and which we should marry with this and a rat should never marry a rabbit or whatever and all that kind of stuff. But what they're doing is they're actually seeking direction and input for how to live their lives from the animals, the created things. Now, we're going somewhere tonight, and I want you to hear me, and I'm going to start tipping you in that direction now. Idolatry is putting confidence in anything besides Christ. Idolatry is putting confidence in anything besides Christ. And with that definition and God's definition, you're going to see that there's some of it in all of us tonight. Now, I'm also going to give you a little word of caution, and I'll show you a scripture about that later on as well. But I'm going to give you a little word of caution. As God begins to speak to you, you have to beware of the tendency to think that it is now your job to show everybody else what he showed you, and now they have to do the same thing. We'll deal with that a little bit later tonight. I'm just going to say you, say you ahead of time, because I know how Satan works. As he convicts you of something, immediately he's going to start showing you how other people are doing the same thing, and you're going to think it's your job to go tell them as well. I'm going to tell you now, you've got a big God, and the same God that can open your eyes to your areas of sin, he can show them too. And so be careful, all right? But things even get worse. God shows Ezekiel women in the temple weeping for Tammuz and others worshiping the sun. Look at verses 14, Romans, I mean, Ezekiel chapter 8 again, verses 14 through 18. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You'll still see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun. Again, a created thing instead of the creator. Worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? We'll come back at the very end and deal with them putting their branch to the nose and explain what that means in just a little bit. Here we see that there were women in the temple worshiping, weeping for Tammuz. Now some of us will say, what does that mean? What is that? Well, in order for us to understand what this weeping for Tammuz is, i got to take you back to Jeremiah chapter 7. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. As I said before, there's no real way to study the book of Ezekiel without studying the book of Jeremiah almost at the same time. And to be honest, if we were going to be real faithful to it, it would kill us, but we'd have to study Isaiah at the same time that we're studying Jeremiah and Ezekiel because they're contemporaries and God is speaking through each of them. Isaiah started first and was speaking to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. As you know during that time the northern kingdom was taken captive and all that was left was the southern kingdom. Jeremiah was speaking to both and then dealt with a lot of the stuff. Ezekiel was taken captive during this process and he was called to prophesy to the southern kingdom and the exiles that are there in Babylon. But the things that God shows them, He's showing Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and they're all about the same stuff. So we get a little more information in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. God tells Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough and make cakes for the Queen of heaven." And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame?" Now jump over to chapter 44. Here we see that they were worshiping the Queen of Heaven. During this time period between chapter 7 and chapter 44, uh, some of the Israelites have been taken captive into, or they've not been taken captive, but they run down to Egypt for safety But while they're there, Jeremiah goes to Egypt and prophesies to them there in Egypt. And listen to what he says to them in chapter 44, verses 15 through 30. He says, Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you've spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed. Make offerings to the queen of heaven, and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, When we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, Was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, "'As for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed.' Therefore your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is to this day. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in His law and in in His statutes and in His testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as it is this day. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel You and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows and perform your vows. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all of you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God, the God lives. So here we see that because of their worshiping the queen of heaven, God was angry with them, and they were offering sacrifices to other gods as well. So now we see that they were offering sacrifices to the queen of heaven, but also women were weeping for Tammuz. What all this is? I'm going to now give you a Reader's Digest version. If you want to do a further study, there's a lot more information out there. But the queen of heaven was the title given to Ishtar, or another name we've heard in the Bible is Ashtoreth, the Babylonian goddess of fertility. All right. This was a goddess. It was a myth. But there was this goddess who would produce blessings with children being born and all that kind of stuff. Supposedly, she was the wife of wife of Baal or Molech, as others called him. The many different stories passed down through the ages vary a little bit. But the common thread is that Ishtar's lover was named Tammuz. Tammuz was a demigod. In other words, at one time was a human being but then became a god, you know, in some of the Greek myths and all that kind of stuff. Tammuz, who was a demigod, was responsible for, for prosperity in agriculture. He would come miraculously to life in the spring, and then things would grow. But he would die in the summer, solstice, so women would weep for him since their tears would water the earth and bring him back in the spring. By the way, when was I Ezekiel taken in these visions to Jerusalem? August and September, during the time when the summer heat was coming and the women were there weeping for Tammuz. It's kind of a sad thing. You do a little bit of research, you'll find that the fourth month, even today, on the Jewish calendar is named Tammuz. You see, all idolatry, organized idolatry, Started in Babylon. It can be traced all the way back to Nimrod, and that's another whole study for another whole time. But this man Nimrod and descendants and all this stuff started there in Babylon. That's why at the very end, the headquarters of the world in the Antichrist kingdom is going to be in Babylon at the very end, as Revelation shows us. And God's going to destroy Babylon ultimately in the end. But at the same time, I want you to hear this. They would worship the queen of heaven, Ashtoreth, or Ishtar, whatever you want to call her. And they would pray to her because she was the goddess of fertility, and because of the fact that they were, she was the goddess of fertility, there would also be prostitution involved in the temple as a part of this process. In order to have the god or goddesses of fertility bless your family with many children, you had to go and have sex with the priest or the priestesses of this cult was going on rampant and all the nations around had been going on for a long time and it had crept into Israel and they had actually started to do it in the temple. Idolatry makes its way into many forms of our worship though like I touched on. Like I said the definition of idolatry is putting confidence in anything that's not Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Colossians chapter 2. You see, even as followers of Jesus, our flesh, because our flesh is still under the curse, our flesh wants credit. Without realizing it, all of us who have been born again and given righteousness through Jesus Christ, we still think that if we do certain things, it'll count before God, won't it? Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae there in chapter 2, starting in verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jump up to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. By the way, were any of you ever raised as children that Sunday was the Sabbath and you weren't allowed to eat out, play, shop? And you felt like when you obeyed the Sabbath, you were closer to God. And if you didn't, you were in trouble with God, right? even though the Bible all along had said that we're not under those regulations. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without a reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. By the way, who's the head? Jesus Christ is the head of the church. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings... These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You remember how the Jews in in Micah said, what are we going to do to get right with God? And they started thinking of all these things they could do. And without realizing it, many of us as well have been kind of raised that way, either by the church or just because it's in our flesh, to think that if we do certain things, we'll be okay with God. When you put your confidence in what you do, that's idolatry. You need to come to a full understanding of who you are in Christ. Now, I want to take a second to read to you a small portion of a chapter here from this book, A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. And if you've never read it, please get it. And by the way, by the end of the book, you'll realize... You read it thinking that it's us pursuing God, and you're going to find out by the end that it's God pursuing us. The pursuit of God is God pursuing us. But listen to what he says. He's just spent the first part of this chapter dealing with what I touched on earlier about this wrong mindset of certain things are sacred and certain things are secular, and trying to help people understand that everything is to be lived toward God and for God and with God, and therefore everything is sacred. He says a concomitant of the error which we have been discussing is the sacred-secular antithesis as applied to places. It's little short of astonishing that we can read the New Testament and still believe in the inherent sacredness of some places. This error is so widespread that one feels all alone when he tries to combat it. It has acted as a kind of dye to color the thinking of religious persons, as it colored the eyes as well, so that it is all but impossible to detect its fallacy. In the face of every New Testament teaching to the contrary, it has been said and sung throughout the centuries and accepted as a part of the Christian message, that which it most surely is not. Only the Quakers, so far as my knowledge goes, have had the perception to see the error and courage to expose it. Here are the facts as I see them. For 400 years Israel had dwelt in Egypt, surrounded by the crassest idolatry. By the hand of Moses they were brought out at last and started toward the land of promise. By the way, Do you remember why God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt to that mountain? What were they to tell Pharaoh? To worship. God pulled them out to worship him. All right? The very idea of holiness had been lost to them. To correct this, God began at the bottom. He localized himself in the cloud and fire... And later, when the tabernacle had been built, he dwelt in fiery manifestation in the holy of holies. By innumerable distinctions, God taught, that taught Israel the difference between holy and unholy. There were holy days and holy vessels and holy garments. There were washing, sacrifices, offerings of many kinds. By these means, Israel learned that God is holy. It was this that he was teaching them, not the holiness of things or places. The holiness of Jehovah was the lesson they must learn. Then came the great day when Christ appeared. Immediately he began to say, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. The Old Testament schooling was over. When Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was open to everyone who would enter in faith. Christ's words were remembered. The hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. How many of us have been taught that this is the sanctuary? This is a holy place. We've got to be careful. Idolatry creeps in in many ways. Shortly after, Paul took up the cry of liberty and declared all meats clean, every day holy. Actually, Paul didn't bring, say that. Jesus did. The scripture even says that in the Gospel of Mark, when he said, it's not what comes into you that makes you unclean, but what comes out. And then he said, hey, don't you understand this, guys? Um, Whatever you take in goes out. That's not what makes you unclean, but what comes out of you, what comes from your heart, what comes out of your mouth and your thoughts, that's what makes you unclean. And then the scripture says right there in the Gospel of Mark, by saying this, he declared all foods clean. Paul declared, all meats clean, every day holy, all places sacred, and every act acceptable to God. The sacredness of times and places, a half-light necessary to the education of the race, passed away before the full sun of spiritual worship. Remember, those all were a shadow of what was to come. Then we just read that in Colossians chapter 2? The reality is in Christ. The essential spirituality of worship remained the possession of the church until it was slowly lost with the passing of years. Then the natural legali- legality of fallen hearts of men began to introduce the old distinctions. The church came to observe again days and seasons and times. Certain places were chosen and marked out as a hol- as holy in a special sense. Differences were observed between one and another day, one another day or place or person. The sacraments were first two, then three, then four, until with the triumph of Romanism they were fixed at seven. From this bondage, reformers and Puritans and mystics have labored to free us. Today, the trend in conservative circles is back toward that bondage again. It's said that a horse, after it has been led out of a burning building, will sometimes, by a strange obstinacy, break loose from its rescuer and dash back into the building again to perish in the flame. By some such stubborn tendency toward error, fundamentalism in our day is moving back towards spiritual slavery, the observation of days and times is becoming more and more prominent among us, Lent and Holy Week, and Good Friday are words heard more and more frequently upon the lips of gospel Christians. We do not know when we're well off. And I know that's hard for some of you to grasp because you were raised in the fact that there are holy days and ho- Let me ask you a question. How many of you are wrestling with whether or not you're supposed to go to the Christmas Eve service? Whether or not you'll be in trouble. Hopefully, you go because you want to. But at the same time, if you don't go, are you sinning? Do you see that we need to understand what it means to be led of the Spirit, as the Spirit of God directs us. Like I told you before, be real careful. Go to Romans chapter 14. As God is the one who's going to be taking us through this journey of showing us what he wants us to observe and not observe and how he wants us to live our lives, we could get into arguments over alcohol or whether or not you should drink or how you should dress or what you should do. Listen closely to Romans chapter 14. Listen to verses 1 and following. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but, don't, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats." The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to live this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. As the Spirit of God takes you in this journey to really understanding the holiness of God and how the Spirit of God wants that to be manifested in your life, he's going to be showing you things that he might not be showing somebody else. And you need to be wise enough to understand that just because God's told you to stop doing something, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to tell somebody else. The Spirit of God will be working on them as well. See, because there are things that the Bible doesn't say are outright sin. you and I talked about women's clothing and how they had made their rules on how everyone in the church you grew up in was to be dressed, and you had people come and, and advise you on whether or not they thought you were following it properly when the scripture is not saying that we have to be careful yet at the same time I think about what I wear each night So you say I don't think you look at the color, but no I I do and even when I travel around I could win arguments around this country on which translation is okay and which one's not okay. And I can win arguments on whether or not I should have to wear a tie or a suit or pants or sandals or whatever. But I, what I've learned over the years is in each situation, I let the Spirit of God give me wisdom as to whether or not that's a hill I want to die on because I want them to hear what I have to say from the Word of God. And so I don't have a set rule on what I always wear and what I always... And you know what? I'll be preaching in the beginning of the year in South Carolina at a church that King James only, I could show, I could take the time to show that that's unnecessary, but you know what? That's not why they're bringing me in to argue about King James only. They brought me in to teach them the word of God, so I'm bringing my King James Bible and I'm gonna teach them the word of God. Do You see what I'm saying? We have to be real careful because whenever we put confidence in the things that we think we're doing better than somebody else, if our confidence is in what we're doing, if it's in our works, it's idolatry. And I want to close tonight by just giving you some scriptures and laying out something that I believe everybody here, most of you understand, but if you don't, let me just clarify this for you. We must note also that worshiping the queen of heaven was wrong. I mean, it can't be any more clear, right? That to worship the queen of heaven was a major no-no. Yet unfortunately, in some Christian circles, they still have that title for Mary. And some of you might have been raised in that, or some of you listening to this tape right now, or it shows my age tape, this recording uh, online. Listen closely. The Bible says that there is no queen of heaven. There is only one king of kings. We should worship and pray to God alone. Write this down and look at it later on. In Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, we see that the people tried to worship the apostles, but the apostles did not want to be worshiped, would not let them worship them. They said, get up, we're servants of God just like you. We're men just like you. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, the angels didn't want to be worshiped and would not allow themselves to be worshiped. Twice we see John fall before the angel, and the angel says, get up, get up, I'm a servant of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the scripture says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. But some of us have been taught that we pray to Mary. There's a famous prayer that many people could recite that starts with praying to Mary. Be careful. It's idolatry to put your confidence in anything besides Christ. Write this one down and go look at it. It's pretty interesting. Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus even discouraged the worship of Mary. It says, he was there in the crowd. A woman cried out. She said, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you and blessed are the breasts from which you nursed. And Jesus said, actually, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God. obey it we thank God for Mary's obedience to what the Spirit of God's plan was for her life but she's not to be worshipped she's not to be worshipped so folks be careful as you allow God to little by little remove your residual forms of trusting in anything but Christ and his power and don't put the branch to your nose You good? Don't put the branch to your nose, and you're all saying, "Yeah, but what does that mean?" Some people have tried to make that drugs. You'll find people saying, "Well, that was that they were doing drugs, you know, they were sniffing coke." Now listen, it's really a hard thing to translate, but the best way I can translate it for you is this: Don't thumb your nose at God. If you go back and look at the context, you'll see very clearly. They pretty much said, "We know what God says." We don't. We're don't. going to do what we want to do. And because they had that attitude, the Spirit of God left the temple, and the judgment was to come. And so, folks, don't put the branch to your nose. Don't thumb your nose at God. Basically, if he speaks, listen. Listen. I love you. Have a great Christmas, and we'll see you the first week of January. Thanks for coming.